Welcome to Core Parenting Conversations with Kaylee. My name is Kaylee Kukwa, and I've spent the last decade supporting children and families with challenging behaviors. As a mom of two, I appreciate how overwhelming and exhausting parenthood can often be. So I'm taking all of my book knowledge and combining it with real life experiences to change the dialogue around parenting. We'll have powerful conversations that always include practical tips so you can walk away feeling inspired and empowered to make simple yet impactful changes in your family's life. Let's dive in. For today's core conversation, I'm super excited. I have a special guest I'm bringing on and she is a dear friend. She's been a big part of my motherhood story. And I'm excited for her to come on and share a little bit of your story, your work, and just this knowledge that when we were planning this podcast, I said, I wish I had this info eight years ago. So welcome, Jillian, to the podcast. I'm really excited to be here. I think this is a really important topic. So I'm really glad you're shedding some light on this. Yes. As Kaylee said, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. So I've worked in mental health for many, many years. However, the past about five or six years, I've spent working in my husband's office, which happens to be an OBGYN office. I'm a Dr. Dudley Brown. I'll give you a little shout out there, honey. So it was kind of both of those things that married together that had kind of brought me to this point of just having this mental health background and wanting to help people and then working in the office and seeing mom struggle, both postpartum, that's the most obvious one, but even before delivery. So I did some further work and actually got certified through PSI, which is just for perinatal mental health specifically, just kind of looking at the different nuances related to motherhood and hormonal pieces that play a role in mental health makes it a little bit different. So that's a little bit of my background and why I'm here today to talk about this very, very important topic. An interesting thing that I learned when I was getting trained is that a staggering number, 11 to 21% of moms are estimated to have postpartum anxiety, which the percentage I don't think meant as much as the number, like one out of five. Um, That's hurt my heart a little bit to think about how many moms. And of course, you've got to assume that there are so many that aren't that aren't documented, right? That aren't reported. And so that we we have to assume that number is even higher. And that's really why I wanted to kind of get back into the mental health field and really try to make a difference so that moms can have a more pleasant experience and really enjoy some of that new baby time instead of having to deal with some of the symptoms and struggles that, you know, that I've seen so many people struggle through. Yeah, I distinctly remember, I had no idea what it was, right? And we're going to talk about some of the symptoms and signs and all that stuff. But I distinctly remember just thinking, oh, this is motherhood. This is just how it is. And thinking that this manic crazy, I mean, I literally, it was like, I kind of felt like I was losing my mind. Like I knew that I wasn't being sane, but I also really felt like, well, this is just how it is. 
I don't know how to explain that. I mean, when you're in the throes of it, right? It's just so intense. And yeah, and I definitely, it was underreported. I had no idea until going through it with my second um, and just so much more aware. I had learned so much more about myself and about mental health and, and had a lot more resources at that point. And it made a huge difference. So I think, you know, normalizing it and also talking about you go into the six-week check. That's when we go in with our doctor, midwife, provider, and we fill out that questionnaire, that screener that they give you, right? Which not everybody does, by the way. And we, <laughs> oh. and I'm going to be honest, We, when we first opened the Brown Institute, we did not. And that was something that we really... like. We certainly asked... You know, I, I don't want to discount the providers asking the questions, mm-hmm. but we didn't... Mm-hmm have a form and force the moms to fill them out. You know, it's very easy for a mom just to kind of skirt over, no, I'm okay. Or like you said, maybe not even realizing that what they're experiencing is really abnormal. But when you can see it on a piece of paper and you can can look at the numerics of it, it makes it a lot more clear to both the, the mom and the provider that, hold on a second, Let's reevaluate what's normal, what's not normal, and really importantly, kind of differentiating what's normal worrying versus what's a true anxiety. Because yeah. it, it is normal to have some additional worries. Uh, I'll admit, when I was without children, I was kind of a daredevil and would do almost a- anything. You jump <laughs> off. That sounds fun. Um, you know, now I've got a little bit more to worry about, which is yeah. normal part of motherhood that you have to think about consequences of your actions a little more, things like that. But flipping back over to the anxiety part, that's kind of more when it's it's life-changing. And it's not just life-changing, but it's interfering with your daily functioning. So that's really what's key, I think, for I really hope people can get out of this is, is understanding it's okay to worry, especially when you're trying to figure out a new baby, you know, figure out a whole new baby, a whole new person with their own personality. Maybe your first time mom, maybe it's your third or fourth baby, but all babies are different. And so it's normal to worry a little bit, add in some sickness and illness and things like that. Or most recently dealing with the COVID virus has certainly increased the anxiety rate, which I think is another reason why I was really kind of thrust into doing this at this time because the anxiety rate has just skyrocketed, in my opinion. So when we're talking about one to five mothers, I think a more realistic number is probably three out of five, to be honest. And especially, like I said, if you really consider the moms dealing with the COVID, and although things have settled down a little bit, still dealing with the newborn and knowing that background does create a little bit more anxiety for moms, I think. Or now, I mean, we're seeing this backlash of this buildup of other viruses, right? That kind of went away when we were (laughs) more isolated or farther apart or whatever, you know, less populated. I don't know what it was, but man, we just went through a lot as a family being sicker than we've been in years. And I was Mm -hmm. thinking, well, thank goodness we're battling this now than in a couple months with a newborn at home. It'd be much scarier. And overwhelming and just a lot, you know, sick kids in addition to becoming, you know, having a new baby and being a mom like that, 
that's enough to send anyone into a spiral. (laughs) So what is the difference? I guess, you know, that's one of the things we really wanted to be clear about is talking about some of the symptoms, some of the things. And I love what you said about it impacting our daily life, because that is something I tell people, I go, I almost became like agoraphobic in a way. The thought of leaving the house with the baby and him starting to cry and Mm -hmm. me being... These were my thoughts. If he starts to cry, I won't be able to comfort him and he'll cry. And it just became so overwhelming. I just chose to not go to things, not go out. Well, you know, when, when, when I'm kind of evaluating or talking to moms about, um, about what they're experiencing in my mind, I kind of qualify them into three different categories, just, I guess, as my own weird quirk to kind of identify where I can best help. So there are some physical symptoms, there's some emotional symptoms, and then there's behavioral symptoms, which is what you kind of talked about. So Mm -hmm. we'll start with the behavioral, where you do, you kind of avoid places, you avoid people, you avoid um, being active or bringing the baby places. Maybe there's like a ladies' luncheon where you could very easily throw the baby in the car seat. The baby would probably sleep the whole time and it would be no big deal. But if you're dealing with anxiety, that's not no big deal. That's an overwhelming yep. prospect that you can't even wrap your mind around how you would get through it, let alone, is it even worth going because you might be sitting there anxious the whole time? The only other thing that I really wanted to bring up, because I feel like this is super common, is kind of this rechecking behavior. So yes, with the behavioral symptoms, doing that checking and rechecking and rechecking and things that that the average person might kind of associate with OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder. There is a way that that kind of manifests itself with motherhood and babies and checking on them constantly at night. We have so much to worry about with SIDS and things like that. We, again, whether it's your first baby or your third or fourth baby, you can check and check and check. And that's kind of a big behavioral sign Again, when that's kind of interfering with your daily functioning, if you're not able... Now, obviously, when you have a newborn, it's not an exciting time to just go out and hang out with your friends all the time. Sometimes you <laughs> just want to, you know, enjoy baby and, and navigate that whole piece of what the new family looks like. That's a really important piece and an important boundary to keep. So I don't want to suggest that having that time, that family time at home alone is a warning signal because it's not. But if you're finding yourself not able to do anything social, that's when you want to kind of pause and really consider, is this a normal part of navigating motherhood or am I starting down this antisocial route? And the compulsive, the checking, the worry, that something that my therapist, I had like this bout because it doesn't just happen in the first like six weeks, right? It comes up, (laughs) came up for me again. I weaned both my boys after they were two and that huge hormonal shift caused another big bout of increase in anxiety symptoms for me. A lot were physical the second time, which we'll get to. But the other piece of this for me too was rage anger. And I remember, and I actually told this story to a friend yesterday and I was chuckling about it because now I can see it for being like so irrational that it's, I can laugh about it now, but at the time it was not funny. It was rage inducing. And it was, you know how when newborns are little, their respiratory rates are irregular and they might do that like (laughs) in the very beginning at night. 
So my first son did that and it woke me up. Like I, you know, when I picked him up, I panicked and he did the <gasps> and started breathing again kind of thing. And I remember looking at my husband because I just started crying when it happened. And so that my crying woke him up and he was like, is everything okay? And I'm like, our baby almost died and you didn't even wake up. And I was so angry at him for not waking up like I did to respond. But it was just now I'm like, wow, that was really... But the rage I felt in that moment mm-hmm. was something completely irrational. I mean, right. he was asleep. He was doing nothing wrong. Or rage that he would leave the house to go to work. Right. It's not like he was going out and like playing all day. He was going to work and leaving me like abandoning me here with this baby. I mean, the rage was just so it constant. It was just, and you know, then it's just, I'm an angry mom. We'd be just become this like angry mom instead of saying, oh no, there was some other emotional needs going on there that I didn't, I was covered up by the anger. Right, right. You know, that's really important distinction that I think needs to be made. And we almost should have started with that because when people hear the term anxiety, they, they so often think of and picture and imagine like someone having an anxiety attack and crying. And so often it manifests itself in different ways, like rage is a huge one. And to be honest, anecdotally, I would say, I think a lot of men experience anxiety in that rage form. And so women don't necessarily see it as rage. They're just like, oh, he's angry. Well, it can also be a little bit of some anxiety too. And so I've really seen a a big change. And some of it is, I think, in hindsight, both in myself Mm -hmm. and watching my friends and family and, and different people in my life. And as I've grown up, like thinking you know, as a child, oh, mom, that's like cranky uncle so-and-so, right? Well, now with the information I have, I realize actually he might've been a little anxious and that might've been his manifestation of that. Mm -hmm. So I think rage is something that's really not talked about enough. I'm very excited that you brought that up and that you're being so vulnerable because it isn't something that most people are going to be proud about. Um, But let's be honest, we've all experienced it to some degree. And I think that if we can kind of categorize that into that anxiety piece, that gives us a good way to actually treat that rage and not just constantly experience it and think that there's nothing that can be done about it. That's really the excellent part. And another reason why I love this specific target group and population because this is something that's super treatable and as you mentioned with the breastfeeding there certainly can be some back and forth in terms of hormones that can kind of feel like a setback so the hormone component is what kind of differentiates it from the traditional anxiety slash depression if that's a piece of it But it also makes it easier to kind of treat because as those hormones start to balance out, so does the anxiety part. And so it it makes it easier to, I don't want to say easier, I guess that's not the right word, but it is truly more treatable and has a better outcome than 
the traditional anxiety and depression that might exist in someone and that might come come back in certain circumstances depending on triggers in your life. And that, I think, segues really well into what's really important, which is kind of knowing yourself and being willing to have insight and knowing, okay, I'm kind of a type A personality or I'm kind of prone to anxiety baseline, right, Kaylee? What's the likelihood I may experience this afterwards, right? Like no one can see in the future. And hindsight is much, much easier to be insightful about. But I think it's important, like when trying to reduce your risk, being able to be insightful enough to say, okay, I do have rage sometimes, or I do have these symptoms sometimes. I do already feel like I have got to check and double check or any one of the typical anxiety symptoms, if you kind of already have some of that baseline, then you may really want to consider getting some extra support before the baby arrives. I think that's really, really a key component. A lot of moms wait until it kind of happens and then seek treatment. And then it's kind of digging yourself out of a hole, which is a little bit trickier versus if you're just kind of at your baseline and you start services with somebody and you already have that rapport, then when you're in your darkest moments, it's much easier. Well, I was going to say a couple of different ideas about just starting care with someone proactively. So whether it be during pregnancy, which is already just there's a lot going on during pregnancy. So I'm 31 weeks now and it's just, there's a lot of things to consider and there's a lot of changes happening and change is hard, whether it's a new baby, moving, you know, any of these big life changes can really impact our mental health, not in a way that is wrong or not normal, just in a way that it's hard. It's our brain is designed to like predictability and Mm -hmm. sameness. And when it doesn't, that does activate some hypervigilance in us. And anxiety is this hypervigilance that gets stimulated. So you don't, for me at least, you know, I don't want to try and find the right fit because if you go to one therapist and maybe they're not the right fit for you. And that doesn't mean that therapy isn't a good thing for you. It just means you haven't found the right person yet. And so finding that right person, because you're only going to get more vulnerable, right? When the baby's born, when you're in the throes of whatever physiological, emotional, behavioral symptoms are going on. And in order to be truly vulnerable with that person and be able to just call in those supports, it is helpful to have that rapport already built up with that person. Um, And they know they might be familiar with some of your triggers or they know what um, access to supports you have. You know, we all have different access to different supports. And so they know how to practically guide you to reach out um, and access those. In, in the moment. Um, and so what is that? What do other things? So I don't know if there's like how to find a therapist, how to find a good match. I got really lucky. I feel like she just, all my girlfriends go to the, <laughs> um, to someone, but, and, and also what are some other supports outside of therapy? Because I know I'll never forget. Actually, it's another great story. It's postpartum. Uh, for me, it always hits me around six months. I don't know what it is about. Maybe there's like a big, you might know, like there's a big hormonal shift or something going on. And it was literally, Jill, it was like the day my son turned, my second son turned six months and I got so mad. 
so mm-hmm. mad at my husband. God bless him. And I was like, that I'm just leaving. I just need a break. I'm going to go stay somewhere overnight. Like you just don't understand. And maybe if you have to do it by yourself, you understand like crazy talk. Okay. And I literally like packed an overnight bag, got in the car and drove around to nowhere, to nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) He took the kids to a friend's house. They had like a dad play date with the kids. You know, he was like unfazed. And then I came home and I was so remorseful, so apologetic, like tail between my legs. And I go, how did you know? And he goes, babe, it's six months. I remember the last six month period. He goes, this is just what happened. <laughs> I was like, you remember that? And he was like, yeah. But to have a partner who was so supportive and so aware, and he could be aware of it for me when I couldn't be. Right, right. Was so incredible. So I think there's a partner element to this too. Of putting the partners on alert of like things to look for. And ways to respond or how to help or you know there there should be a proactive conversation because yeah that was that was a special moment <laughs> i distinctly remember having a moment right after having our second child and my husband has a unique schedule where he's on call often and yes. i had this pressure on me where i felt like i really needed to schedule a newborn photo shoot right how important is that not at all <laughs> But I remember sitting at my kitchen counter and tears just start streaming down my face. can't fathom how on earth I'm going to schedule a newborn photo shoot with my husband's work schedule. And he just looked at me and kind of chuckled. And I was like, how could you laugh at me right now? And he's like, because I know what's happening. And he was absolutely right. It was completely out of my control. It was just my hormones shifting. And luckily he since he does this for a living, he knows exactly what to look for. And I do want to touch on that, that I feel like that has been another part of the increased anxiety in relation to COVID. Specifically, our COVID protocols has limited the support people that can come to the office visits and learn some of these things and have some of these conversations with the providers. I feel like that's one thing that is really responsible for that increase in anxiety because whether it be a partner or we have some patients where it's just a very supportive extended family, it doesn't matter honestly who that person is or who the people are, but it's about making sure that your set is in place, whatever that means for you. Mm-hmm. I agree wholeheartedly and I tell every single client that I meet with that if I'm not a good fit, I don't take it personally. I'd much rather any client that's in need find somebody that can help them, even if it's not me. And I hope wholeheartedly that all counselors and therapists kind of have that mindset because ultimately it's about the client slash patient and them getting their needs met whether it be with a counselor. I do love the one positive part about COVID in relation to counseling is it has opened up access. Um, So you did kind of ask a little bit about what can people do? And one of the things is trying to kind of get somebody on board before you're pregnant, maybe, especially when there's some infertility issues that definitely Mm -hmm. increases anxiety during pregnancy, especially if you know that you're kind of one of those people that might be a little bit at risk afterwards. 
And if you're not and you don't need that person, great. Nothing's, there's no harm done. But then also just having that person, but then having family support, again, whatever that looks like, if that's a partner, if that's parents, the providers oftentimes ask, okay, well, who's coming right when the baby's born? Who's going to be at the hospital? Who's going to be there when you come home from the hospital? And not everybody has the same level of support system. And it's unfortunate. I wish, you know, we all had a village because that helped moms tremendously having a village. Unfortunately, since that isn't the case, the counselor can be part of that village, can be one of those people that reminds the mom, okay, you're doing all of the right things. You don't need to recheck the baby a thousand times. Getting some of that reassurance that your provider maybe can't give to you. Or maybe if it's your first baby and your partner doesn't have that insight. Again, your counselor or somebody that's experienced and trained specifically in perinatal mental health will be able to kind of help you navigate them. The only other plug slash resource that I want to throw in there is um, a website called postpartum.net. And it stands for Postpartum Support International. And that's actually the agency that did my training, but they have a crisis line. That's all they do. That's all they're about. They can get you connected with certified um, mental health counselors in your area that are specifically trained in this. There certainly are generalists that can help, but it is helpful to have that additional training to understand the different nuances related to mental health in motherhood. They also, since we're, although we're off topic talking about the partners, they do have support for partners on that website as well. And so luckily, like you mentioned, your husband and mine were able to navigate our issues, I guess we'll say. Um, our moments. Pretty, <laughs> our moments right, pretty well. And luckily, they're pretty well educated and kind of know us and have some insight. If you've tried the Instagram parenting tips and tricks to gain connection and cooperation with your child and it's still not working, or maybe you just want to grow your parenting toolbox or grow your own personal skill set, if you feel confused about how to respond to some of your child's bigger behavior, or maybe you need the encouragement and accountability to make the changes you know you and your family need, CORE offers the weekly support and tools to make these powerful shifts within a supportive, uplifting community. We talk about real-life parenting, not the neat and clean two-dimensional examples given on social media. You can learn more about my core membership program by heading to www.kayleekukla.com backslash core. It's a month-to-month membership. You can cancel it at any time, no strings attached, and it's meant to be on-demand parenting support so you can access it when it's needed and when it's convenient for you. The link is in the show notes to learn more. And now back to this core conversation with Kaylee. But for those partners that don't, getting them a little support from the website and getting them connected can be a good thing too, because then they can point out, hey, there's a hormone shift happening. That's probably why she's lashing out. And just let her do her thing or don't engage, right? I think that's sometimes what happens when there's more domestic issues that come up. It's because it's the rage that you experience or anyone experiences. If your partner is not aware that it's not about them and that it's Mm -hmm. whatever is experiencing on the inside, 
they can then engage and it can end up in more of a domestic issue and put a lot of strain on that relationship. And so, again, that's why it's so important to kind of have some forethought and really try to plan things out so both mom and potentially partner is supported if need be. I love that point because that's so much of how I talk about children's behavior too. And one of the first steps is not to take it personally because once we take it personally, right, it becomes this attack. And so we attack back and we get defensive. And so for partners to just have that baseline understanding of there's hormonal shifts it's not going to be, ra- you can't rationalize with an irrational person, you know, and it's not going to be rational because it is coming from a place of just overwhelm and hormone and not to minimize, it feels so real while you're experiencing it. It, it truly, the perception is the reality. It truly is. Yes. But so that they can be that safe, steady present or presence in that moment, just like, you know, we strive to be for our children when they're in the throes of an emotional meltdown, because it really is the same kind of brain science being activated there in that moment. And it doesn't mean that feelings of, you know, the newborn shoot or me being overwhelmed, feeling like I was doing it all when clearly my husband was very involved, but those feelings are so real. Our perception is so real and it's so much about what we're experiencing internally. And it, the partner be, can be such an advocate for us and help diffuse, or the family member. You know, I love that you mentioned family members because for me, like, for example, my sister is a big one. I know mm-hmm. people, you know, moms and mother in law or whoever it might be an aunt, a neighbor, those kind of people can just come in and recognize it for what it is and not feel like, well, she's clearly just mean and angry and a control freak. Mine just looks like, being a control freak all the time. Um, <laughs> and that's that's not, you know, it's more than that. So I love just all those points too, because it is so important. And I think there's a piece too, and we don't have to talk about it today, but there's an anxiety piece for the partner too. Again, it's this huge life change. It's this huge shift and saying, okay, you know, I'm going to need you to be my support person through this time period. Who do you have to support you? Because that's a heavy load to carry. It is. Some of these partners, I mean, because they at some point have to go back to work. They get up in the middle of the night and help out at then and then come home and potentially, you know, encounter a crying baby and crying spouse and who knows. And other children. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. I mean, that, I think it would be really ignorant of, of us not to acknowledge how impactful the whole process is to our partners. And we, at the office, we had oftentimes spoken directly to the partner and said, okay, these are the things you need to look out for. This is normal. This is normal. This is when you may need to call us. And it also makes me really sad too, because I, I feel like I'm well, social media is a whole nother animal that is for another day. But <laughs> but I, I do feel like we need to mention it for a couple of reasons. Number one, it is responsible for increasing maternal mental health issues significantly because it allows moms to paint a rosy picture and hide the rageful, painful moments. And so it's done the opposite of normalizing what real motherhood looks like. So I was thinking about even, was it, I think it was Dudley, 
who was like, we want Nicholas to come. And this is pre-COVID. We want Nicholas to come to like after 36 weeks to the weekly visits because they talk to me, but they want that sounding board to hear the information too. Because at that point, there's a lot of emotions um, at play. And and there is... So I was thinking, I was kind of thinking about that, how that can be a helpful tool. And now a lot of offices have allowed that support person back in. But if we want to stay on the social media vein of, you know, the mom comparison, really painting this rosy picture of motherhood, but really getting back to, I think that just leads to a lot of shame. Maybe we can talk kind of about that and why it's important to just talk about it amongst people. Right. It's just sadly not advertised is the wrong word, but like, it's just not so normalized, which is why when you brought up doing this podcast, it was so important for me to make it a priority because it's just one little minute way in which we can try our best to kind of normalize, at least discussing these sorts of things. And yes, partners, I think are also a good way to to kind of reflect, I guess, about what is seen on social media. And they can kind of help moms understand, okay, what what's real life? And like, what is normal for one family may not be normal for the other family, and that's okay. And that's the disadvantage of social media, but the advantage of having a partner that's involved and that's educated from the providers, from the internet, from past deliveries, et cetera. The other part that I wanted to, to just throw out there real quick too some of the risk factors, that's what I think they try to kind of talk about beforehand with some of the Mm. parts that are involved and sometimes can be involved via FaceTime, even if they can't show up to the appointment. But it's important because some of the things that you don't know might happen can be some of the triggers. So for example, the history of a loss of a child can be a trigger or having a baby with specific health needs right? So, so far we've just talked about, I mean, in general, how things have gone for you, me, the average Joe, but we also ignore the fact that not everything goes as planned and all of that brings on additional anxiety, potentially for both mom and partner. You bring home a sick baby or just dealing with the NICU, that brings up a whole host of other, you do a whole separate podcast on, but those are things that can come up after the fact or during delivery, I suppose, that if not prepared for and not having that support system can really throw you off the rails. And sometimes those things aren't predictable. So I think really having that educated partner slash support system. And again, it doesn't have to always be big and it doesn't have to always be right next door either. So like you mentioned, your sister, for example, who is really, really helpful for you. They can be helpful and they can be a sounding board from across another state. Finding a therapist, now that the whole world has opened up to this online providing services, it's actually kind of a good thing because it allows you access to so many other therapists and providers that may not be in your area, but they don't need to in order to provide you with the right care that you might need. So it's kind of that the pros and cons of the social media, internet, like kind of thrown into that maternal mental health. You know, there's definitely some pros to it. There's definitely some cons as well. 
And I think, you know, I, because obviously I have a social media presence and I'm on there a lot, really being intentional with who you're following when you're following them. Maybe you love the account, but maybe it's just not serving you in that moment. Maybe you are finding yourself comparing yourself to that mom in particular a lot. Snooze them for 30 days. Yes. You know, you don't have to unfollow if you, you're like, oh, but I still really like the content usually. I've snoozed people for 30 days just because I'm like, I need a break from this line of information. It just happened. I follow this. She's a L&D nurse on TikTok. Like, I just love her. I love her content so much. Well, she just posted... It was about maternal and infant loss on one of her shifts. And so that started to bring up all kinds of infant loss videos. Well, I'm in... (laughs) I'm like... Delivering very soon, not what I need to be exposing myself to right now. And being aware of that and saying, look, I love this creator. I love her content. It's not serving me right now. And it's okay to take a break from that. So I think it's, you know, social media, because then there are some great accounts that can normalize the messy side of motherhood or maybe do talk about postpartum anxiety. I follow a lot of content creators around mental health and talking about maybe the lesser known symptoms or support. And so I think, you know, social media, again and again, I come back to it's a tool. And if we use that tool intentionally, it can serve us. And when it's not serving us, it's okay to take a break, mute it, yes. know, clean out our <laughs> clean out our list of follows. I'm about to do that again. Um, <laughs> it just it help it really does help because it really can either normalize things and help you feel seen, heard, and understood and give you resources and tools, or it can drive you crazy. Like it can make you feel inadequate, shame, guilt, mm-hmm. all of those things. And we don't need any more of that when we're in the throes. Now, one thing I did want to clarify too, because I shared that my peak for anxiety, I know given the last two two children I've had. And so we're kind of planning around this again is that six month mark Mm -hmm. Uh, for me, for whatever reason, hormone shifts, whatever it might be, that's when I peak. So what is postpartum period? Like it's not, it's not just that six weeks. It's not at that six week check. Right. Right. That's which which we do our darndest to remind patients to reach out to us beforehand if needed, which does put the responsibility back onto the patient, I realize. But there are definitely moms that become symptomatic actually before leaving the hospital. And there's actually a relatively new medication that they can give to you in the hospital. I don't know how common it is And I can't claim to be super familiar with that particular medication since I'm not hospital-based, but the symptomology of it definitely can start much sooner. And there's different components. I think not bringing up the breastfeeding component would be really silly because that (laughs) is a super stressful piece that a lot of it gets normalized. Like, oh, it's just normal. You, You might see a mama breastfeeding. Oh, it's normal. I can do that. And you don't realize how anxiety-producing breastfeeding itself can be. There's that part of it. Struggles with breastfeeding, right? Sometimes there's physical reasons why it can't happen. And the number of times that one of our providers has had to say to a mother, stop breastfeeding and give the baby formula is astounding. And it's scary. And it makes me sad because 
there's so much pressure put on moms to breastfeed. And please don't think that I'm pushing formula because that's not my goal. My goal is to have a healthy mom and a healthy baby. And that's the goal of the entire practice. So if that means feeding the baby formula so that the mom can cope and can get through day to day, that's what it means. And in addition to that, with the breastfeeding component, I feel like that plays a role on that postpartum period, quote unquote, because when you as a lot of moms know, when you stop breastfeeding, the hormones shift again. So there's the postpartum period and hormones that shift after the baby's born. And then there's a different set of hormones that are there to produce the milk. And then there's a different set of hormones that, that come on once you're done breastfeeding. And so although certain research will say about six months is kind of the general timeline in terms of diagnoses, for specifically postpartum, I think that's kind of an ignorant time frame because it depends on so many factors, including breastfeeding, the length of breastfeeding, the amount of breastfeeding, the amount of milk production, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many pieces to that, um, whether or not there's other children in the home. Because let's be honest, when it's your first baby, although it's sometimes the most stressful, it's a different animal than having a new baby and then also having a child. I'm not saying one's better or easier than the other because that's not a fair statement. They're just different animals. They're just different entirely in terms of the stressors and the way that a mom has to navigate all of those responsibilities. And no, and I love that consideration. And I think, you know, my motivation was let's get rid of this idea that postpartum is just that six week postpartum check or the fourth. Some people know, I think it's becoming more popular to talk about the fourth trimester, right? Those first three months. And I think, I think statistically speaking, there is a big drop off of breastfeeding around the six month mark for majority of women. So that would make sense too, that that kind of coincides with that number of six months being the postpartum range. But for people who breastfeed longer, you know, for me, it kind of calmed down for a while. And then I weaned my boys after their second birthdays. And so that was another major hormonal shift. The first time with my first, I was pregnant. So I didn't quite experience the same hormonal shift that when I did with my second. And it was pretty profound. And it just so happened actually that it was around the same time as my annual check. Mm -hmm. And so I went and I saw Dr. Brown, your husband, and I, and I told him about it. And I said, I just, I noticed. And here at this point, I had done so much work. I was so self-aware. I knew the symptoms. I knew the flags, right? I knew exactly what to do when I started feeling those symptoms, where to get help. And so I was able to manage it effectively. But I let him know, I'm like, hey, FYI, this was a pretty like rough month for me because of this. And he was like, wow, that's a really good reminder. You know, most people don't... <laughs> Don't nurse for two years. So kind of forget to do that check-in, but it was just nice then to have the doctor validating that too and understanding that, yeah, so that postpartum period may be much longer for me just because we chose to breastfeed longer and we're able to do that than the six-month mark or whatever. So I don't... I like that you said there's not really a clear, distinct cutoff. It really depends on the dynamic of you know, maybe you have mat leave and you can take six months off and then you have to go back to work at six months. I have clients in Sweden 
mom gets a year and then dad gets a year. Right. Right. I know. Isn't that, wouldn't that be magical? And to me, you know, I'm sitting on the call going, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. Um, My mind is blown right now. So, you know, or it could be the six week mark for a lot of moms. And so there is a lot of just what's your situation? What are the circumstances? And, And all of those factors matter. And I'd like to also mention, I think that it can be prolonged when not treated as well. So like I've even experienced women that are done past the quote unquote postpartum period, done breastfeeding, then some of the symptoms are still kind of remaining because if it goes untreated and there's no way to say, okay, if you go untreated and you just push through it, you're going to be okay at the end. There's no way to know that because let's be honest, it's not like, oh, after six months, then things normalize and everything's perfect and rosy. That's not (laughs) the case. There's stages, and as you know so well, all the different developmental stages brings its own level of stressors and its own way to navigate that. So I've definitely seen moms that will kind of have this this lingering, I guess, sort of symptomology that I think kind of came from or started during that postpartum period and just really was never treated. Another reason why if you can manage it at the beginning, it just gets a healthier mom and healthier baby sooner. And that's, that's mm-hmm. really the goal. Like we can talk, I mean, we, you and I could talk all day about this stuff, but yeah. Yeah. that's what we want is just a healthier mom and a healthier baby. And the babies know, babies know when mom's stressed out and if mom's having trouble breastfeeding and tears up and cries every time the baby tries to latch because it's pain, like those things matter. And that's the other piece I was going to say about social media. I'm not sure if this can be edited in at all, but I see so many moms on there asking for help after they've had their delivery. And that part makes me sad that they don't know to reach out to their provider. And so I feel like it is important to say you should be able to reach out to your provider if you're not comfortable doing it because there is a stigma around mental health then you should have a partner or a support person that can reach out on your behalf. And if that is ignored, then you need a new provider. And it doesn't have to be the Brown Institute. I'm not plugging the Brown Institute. I'm just saying it needs to be a provider that will listen and that will guide you through that really important period. Because I have had friends out of state and in state that have had providers that have not been supportive, that have not given what's needed during that crucial time. And even if that's just a referral to a specialist, which some people can find online, but ultimately that's why we do the evaluation in the office and why we try to remind moms that deliver with us that you can reach out for anything at any point in time. And we are here as a support team. And sometimes if you don't have as close of a connection with a provider as maybe you have with yours. It might yeah. be a lot harder to, to admit to some of those things, but please do use your providers because they are a really good resource and they are trained and can help normalize some of the things. And they can kind of help say, okay, well, some of this I think is pretty normal. Um, maybe just start off seeing a therapist. They can determine potentially if there's medication that could be helpful. They can be such a great resource if you use them and you're not afraid 
open up to them. So I just wanted to throw that out there too. Yeah. And even if you know you don't feel like your provider is the most supportive, they might have a referral base and have some really great referrals on there to send you to who, who really, whether it be a lactation specialist or mental health provider or a doula, right, a doula all of those. Yeah. So, and I think this is a really great note to end on is just moms matter, you know, and, and I think there's such a big focus once the baby enters the world on the baby and, you know, what the baby is eating, are they sleeping? Like all of these things, moms matter. And sometimes the decisions we make really, it's that oxygen mask principle. We've got to put that oxygen mask on ourselves. We've got to know that. And you know, in the beginning, if you're someone like me who has difficulty reaching out for help and accepting help when it's offered, then if you need permission to not do it for yourself, do it for your baby instead. Mm -hmm. If that's what helps you, that's what helped me get started on accepting help. And now that's helped me realize, well, I'm worthy of help just in and of me, you know, but sometimes that's hard and uncomfortable in the very beginning to do it on behalf of yourself. But I think that's a beautiful message to end on. Moms matter. That's why we're here. I'm so glad we had this conversation and it was a perfect one to send me out on maternity leave. (laughs) Congratulations early. Excited for you guys. By the time this airs, May 1st, that will that okay. will be maternity leave. So <laughs> well, I'm very excited for you guys. Thank you so much for having me and taking the time to talk about this very important um topic. And um I'm so glad that yeah, that we did this and we could talk for hours and hours about symptoms and all kinds of things like that. I'm happy to send stuff over if anybody has any questions. You know, we could talk about this for days, but just, yes, moms matter and moms make the world go around. Let's be honest. Yeah, we do. We basically do. Moms make the world go around. So we've got to keep them healthy and keep them happy. And yes, I have told multiple friends, family, and clients that if nothing else, do it so that you can be a better mom for your baby. Yep. If that's what you need to get started, then that's the message. You know, so I will link the resources that you mentioned in the show notes for people who want to find you, find the resources you mentioned, because I hope that this conversation was just illuminating, but also that it provides some tactical resources for people who may need it or listening. So thanks so much for being here, Jillian. Yes. Thank you for having me. 